We all woke up in the middle of the night. We walked out into the town. We looked up at the clock tower in the town square. The black clock. It didn't ring, but we all heard it. Black Clock Audio Tales. Hosted by me, D.B. Spitzer. This month, more Anne Radcliffe. The castles... Uh, my, I don't have my glasses on. Anthony and Dundane, uh, our reader this month will clarify the name. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, this episode is brought to you by uh, Uncle Owen's Goat Farm, uh, finest chef in the region. Uh, you can pick that up at A1 Grocery. And also, hey, Oblivions, our patio is open during the pandemic. And as we all know, Oblivions has the biggest patio uh, for Oktoberfest, St. Patty's Days. And if you want to rent it for your next get-together in the upcoming months when we're able to have get-togethers, they are, yeah, no, you can, you can rent the uh, beer garden and it, it'll all be great. Anyway, thank you so much. Black Clock Audio Tales, 1130 AM, KZOM, the place to be and be seen. That is such a stupid slogan. Why do we... You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Recording by Lauren Randall. The Castles of Othlin and Dunbane by Anne Radcliffe. Chapter 4. Meanwhile, the Earl remained a solitary prisoner in the tower. Uncertain fate was yet suspended over him. He had, however, a magnanimity in his nature, which baffled much of the cruel effort of the baron. He had prepared his mind by habitual contemplation for the worst, and although that worst was death, he could now look to it even with serenity. Those violent transports which had assailed him on sight of the baron were, since he was no longer subject to his presence, reduced within their proper limits. Yet he anxiously avoided dwelling on the memory of his father, lest those dreadful sensations should threaten him with returning torture. Whenever he permitted himself to think of the sufferings of the countess and his sister, his heart melted with a sorrow that almost unnerved him. Much he wished to know how they supported this trial, and much he wished that he could convey to them intelligence of his state. He endeavored to abstract his mind from his situation, and sought to make himself artificial comforts, even from the barren objects around him. His chief amusement was in observing the manners and customs of the birds of prey, which lodged themselves in the battlements of his tower, and the rapacity of their nature furnished him with too just a parallel to the habits of men." As he was one day standing at the grate, which looked upon the castle, observing the progress of these birds, his ear caught the sound of that sweet lute, whose notes had once saved him from destruction. It was accompanied by the same melodious voice he had formerly heard, and which now sung with impassioned tenderness the following air. When first the vernal morn of life beamed on my infant eye, fond I surveyed the smiling scene, nor saw the tempest nigh. Hope's bright illusions touched my soul, my young ideas led, and fancy's vivid tints combined, and fairy prospect spread. My guileless heart expanded wide, with filial fondness fraught, paternal love that heart supplied, with all its fondness sought. But, oh, the cruel quick reverse, fate all I loved involved. 
pale grief hopes trembling rays dispersed and fancy's dreams dissolved. Lost in surprise, Osbert stood for some time looking down upon an inner court, whence the sounds seemed to arise. After a few minutes, he observed a young lady enter from that side on which the tower arose. On her arm rested an elder one, in whose face might be traced the lines of decaying beauty. But it was visible from the melancholy which clouded her features that the finger of affliction had there anticipated the ravages of time. She was dressed in the habit of a widow, and the black veil which shaded her forehead and gave a fine expression to her countenance. devolved upon the ground in a length of train, and heightened the natural majesty of her figure. She moved with slow steps, and was supported by the young lady whose veil half disclosed a countenance where beauty was touched with sorrow in imitable expression. The elegance of her form and the dignity of her air proclaimed her to be of distinguished rank. On her arm was hung that lute whose melody had just charmed the attention of the earl. Who was now fixed in wonder at what he beheld, that was equalled only by his admiration. They retired through a gate on the opposite side of the court, and were seen no more. Osbert followed them with his eyes, which for some time remained fixed upon the door through which they had disappeared, almost insensible of their departure. When he returned to himself, he discovered, as if for the first time, that he was in solitude. He conjectured that these strangers were confined by the oppressive power of the baron, and his eyes were suffused with tears of pity. When he considered that so much beauty and dignity were the unresisting victims of a tyrant, his heart swelled high with indignation. His prison became intolerable to him, and he longed to become at once the champion of virtue and the deliverer of oppressed innocence. The character of Malcolm arose to his mind, black with accumulated guilt, and aggravated the detestation with which he had ever contemplated it. The hateful idea nerved his soul with a confidence of revenge. Of the guard who entered, he inquired concerning the strangers, but could obtain no positive information. He came to impart other news, to prepare the earl for death. The morrow was appointed for his execution. He received the intelligence with the firm hardihood of indignant virtue, disdaining to solicit and disdaining to repine, and his mind yet grasped the idea of revenge. He drove from his thoughts with precipitation the tender ideas of his mother and sister, remembrances which would subdue his fortitude without affecting any beneficial purpose. He was told of the escape of Allan. This intelligence gave him inexpressible pleasure. And he knew this faithful youth would undertake to avenge his death. When the news of Allan's flight had reached the baron, his soul was stung with rage, and he called for the guards of the dungeon. They were nowhere to be found. And after a long search, it was known that they were fled with their prisoner. The flight of the other captives was also discovered. The circumstance exasperated the passion of Malcolm to the utmost. And he gave orders that the life of the remaining sentinel should be forfeited for the treachery of his comrades and his own negligence. When recollecting the earl, whom in the heat of his resentment he had forgot, his heart exulted in the opportunity he afforded of complete revenge. And in the fullness of joy with which he pronounced his sentence, he retracted the condemnation of the trembling guard. The moment after he had dispatched the messenger with his resolve to the earl, his heart faltered from its purpose. 
such as the alternative violence of evil passions, that they never suffer their subjects to act with consistency. But torn by conflicting energies, the gratification of one propensity is destruction to the enjoyment of another, and the moment in which they imagine happiness in their grasp is to them the moment of disappointment. Thus it was with the baron. His soul seemed to attain its full enjoyment in the contemplation of revenge, till the idea of Mary inflamed his heart with an opposite passion. His wishes had caught new ardor from disappointment, for he had heard that Mary had been once in the power of his emissaries, and perhaps the pain which recoils upon the mind from every fruitless effort of wickedness served to increase the energies of his desires. He spurned the thought of relinquishing the pursuit, yet there appeared to be no method of obtaining its object but by sacrificing his favorite passion. For he had little doubt of obtaining Mary, when it should be known that he resolved not to grant the life of the earl upon any other ransom. The balance of these passions hung in his mind in such nice equilibrium, that it was for some time uncertain which would preponderate. Revenge, at length, yielded to love. But he resolved to preserve the torture of expected death by keeping the earl ignorant of his reprieve to the last moment. The earl awaited death with the same stern fortitude with which he received its sentence, and was led from the tower to the platform of the castle, silent and unmoved. He beheld the preparations for his execution, the instruments of death, the guards arranged in files with an undaunted mind. The glare of externals had no longer power over his imagination. He beheld every object with indifference. But that on which his eye now rested, it was on the murderer, who exhibited himself in all the pride of exulting conquest. He started at the sight, and his soul shrunk back upon itself. Disdaining, however, to appear disconcerted, he endeavored to resume his dignity, when the remembrance of his mother, overwhelmed with sorrow, rushed upon his mind, and quite unmanned him. The tears started in his eyes, and he sunk senseless on the ground. On recovering, he found himself in his prison, and he was informed that the baron had granted him a respite. Malcolm, mistaking the cause of disorder in the earl, thought he had stretched his sufferings to their utmost limits. He therefore had ordered him to be reconveyed to the tower. A scene so striking and so public as that which had just been performed at the castle of Dunbane was a subject of discourse to the whole country. It was soon reported to the countess with a variety of additional circumstances, among which it was affirmed that the earl had been really executed. Overwhelmed with this intelligence, Matilda relapsed into her former disorder. Sickness had rendered Mary less able to support the shock, and to apply that comfort to the ambitions of her mother, which had once been so successfully administered. The physician pronounced the malady of the countess to be seated in the mind, and beyond the reach of human skill. When one day a letter was brought to her, the superscription of which was written in the hand of Osbert, she knew the characters, and bursting the seal, read that her son was yet alive, and did not despair of throwing himself once more at her feet. He requested that the remains of his clan might immediately attempt his release. He described in what part of the castle his prison was situated, and thought that by the assistance of long-scaling ladders and ropes, contrived in the manner he directed, he might be able to effect his escape through the grate. This letter was a reviving cordial to the countess and to Mary. 
Alan was indefatigable in collecting followers for the enterprise he had engaged in. On receiving intelligence of the safety of the Earl, he visited the clan and was strenuous in exhorting them to immediate action. They required little incitement to a cause in which every heart was so much interested, and for which every hand was already busied in preparation. These preparations were at length completed. Alan, at the head of his party, joined the assembled clan. The countess, for a second time, beheld from the ramparts the departure of her people upon the same hazardous enterprise. The present scene revived in her mind a sad remembrance of the past. The same tender fears and the same prayers for success she now gave to their departure. And when they faded in distance from her sight, she returned into the castle, dissolved in tears. The heart of Mary was torn by a complex sorrow, and incapable of longer concealing from herself the interest she took in the departure of Alan, her agitation became more apparent. The countess in vain endeavored to compose her mind. Mary, affected by her tender concern and prompted by the natural ingenuineness of her disposition, longed to make her the confidant of her weakness, if weakness that can be termed which arises from gratitude and from admiration of great and generous qualities. But delicacy and timidity arrested the half-formed sentence and closed her lips in silence. Her health gradually declined under the secret agitation of her mind. Her physician knew her disorder to originate in suppressed sorrow and advised as the best cordial a confidential friend. Matilda now perceived the cause of her grief. Her former passing observations recurred to her memory and justified her discernment. She strove by every soothing effort to win her to her confidence. Mary, oppressed by the idea of ungenerous concealment, resolved at length to unveil her heart to a mother so tender of her happiness. She told her all her sentiments. The countess suffered a distress almost equal to that of her daughter. Her affectionate heart swelled with equal wishes for her happiness. She admired with warmest gratitude the noble and aspiring virtues of the young Highlander. But the proud nobility of her soul repelled with quick vivacity every idea of union with a youth of such ignoble birth. She regarded the present attachment as the passing impression of a youthful fancy, and believed that gentle reasoning, aided by time and endeavor, would conquer the enthusiasm of love. Mary listened with attention to the reasonings of the countess. Her judgment acknowledged their justness, while her heart regretted their force. She resolved, however, to overcome an attachment which would produce so much distress to her family and to herself. Notwithstanding her endeavors to exclude Alan from her thoughts, the generous and heroic qualities of his mind burst upon her memory in all their splendor. She could not but be conscious that he loved her. She saw the struggles of his soul and the delicacy of his passion, which made him ever retire in the most profound and respectful silence from its object. She solicited her mother to assist in expelling the destructive image from her mind. The countess exerted every effort to amuse her to forgetfulness, every hour except those which were given to exercises necessary for her health, was devoted to the cultivation of her mind and the improvement of her various accomplishments. 
These endeavors were not unsuccessful. The countess with joy observed the returning health and tranquility of her daughter, and Mary almost believed she had taught herself to forget. These engagements served also to beguile the tedious moments which must intervene ere news could arrive from Allen concerning the probable success of the enterprise. Misery yet dwelt in the castle of Dunbane, for there the virtues were captive, while the vices reigned despotic. The mind of the baron, ardent and restless, knew no peace. Torn by conflicting passions, he was himself the victim of their power. The earl knew that his life hung upon the caprice of a tyrant. His mind was nerved for the worst, yet the letter which the compassion of one of his guards at the risk of his life had undertaken to convey to the countess afforded him a faint hope that his people might yet effect his escape. In this expectation he spent hour after hour at his grate, wishing with trembling anxiety to behold his clan advancing over the distant hills. These hills became, at length, in a situation so barren of real comforts, a source of ideal pleasure to him. He was always at the grate, and often, in the fine evenings of summer, saw the ladies, whose appearance had so strongly excited his admiration and pity, walk on a terrace below the tower. One very fine evening, under the pleasing impressions of hope for himself and compassion for them, his sufferings, for a time, lost their acuteness. He longed to awaken their sympathy and make known to them that they had a fellow prisoner. The parting sun trembled on the tops of the mountains, and a softer shade fell upon the distant landscape. The sweet tranquility of evening threw an air of tender melancholy over his mind. His sorrows for a while were hushed, and under the enthusiasm of the hour he composed the following stanzas, which, having committed them to paper, he the next evening dropped upon the terrace. Sonnet Hail to the hallowed hill, the circling lawn, the breezy upland and the mountain stream, the last tall pine that earliest meets the dawn, and glistens latest to the western gleam. Hail every distant hill and downland plain, your dew-hid beauty's fancy oft unveils, what time to shepherds read or poets strain. Sorrowing my heart, its destined woe bewails. Blessed are the fairy hour, the twilight shade, Of evening wandering through her woodlands dear. Sweet the still sound that steals along the glade. Tis fancy wafts it, and her votaries hear. Tis fancy wafts it, and how sweet the sound. I hear it now, the distant hills uplong while fairy echoes from their dells around, and woods and wilds the feeble notes prolong. He had the pleasure to observe that the paper was taken up by the ladies, who immediately retired into the castle. End of chapter 4、hey、everyone, thanks again for listening to this episode of Black Clock Audio Tales. I've been your host, DB Spitzer. Check out next week's episode, you know, two a week. Hey.、Uh, and for those who are listening,、uh, if you don't listen to some episodes, you can listen to others. Quick update I'm no longer the mayor. Town elected a new mayor.、Uh, I am Pickman. A、uh, reclusive chap hangs out in the mayor's residence. Doesn't really have me do a lot of stuff. Is just trying to.、Uh, 
get people to uh, care about oleander, greenify it, keep it clean, um, get the cemetery back up to snuff, get people wanting to live and die in oleander. So, hey, you know, business is huge. All right. We'll see you next time. And remember, rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends about what's going on, and we'll tell you what's going on with our friends. All right. Thank you again, and we'll talk to you later. All right.